Good morning, New Hope. It is good to see you hardy souls here on torrentially wet and windy days, but that's all good. It's so nice to see you. How many of you this last week have had an opportunity to have a conversation with some of your work colleagues, some of your neighbours, some of your, some people who are in your house about Christmas, about Christmas or God? Anybody? That's fantastic. Probably at least 30% of you. I was amazed this week, I just counted up this week, there's probably been about nine conversations each with unchurched people I've been able to have. And it's just a delight to share because there is a tremendous spiritual thirst out there. And Christmas is a great time to just sense and see what God brings up when you're talking to different people at work. Today, uh, if you have not picked up one of these, I'd encourage you to pick one of these up. I'm going to conclude this series today that we've been in for the last basically about nine weeks with a challenge that you will hear from your work colleagues and from your friends. And it goes like this. Hey, Christianity, it seems a little narrow, isn't it? I mean, Jesus, the only way? Come on. Surely there are many ways to God besides Jesus. So that is what we would call in selling an objection. And you have to learn how to equip yourself to answer the question. So isn't your Christianity a fraction bigoted and narrow and exclusive? You're going to hear that. Has anybody heard that question? Can I see your hands? Okay, about 50% of you, which is good. If you haven't, have a listen because it's going to come up. Now, if that objection was true, it will be a problem. If there are other ways to God besides Jesus, then that clearly implies the Bible is wrong. That's what it implies. If there are other ways, right? The Bible will be wrong and Jesus didn't speak the truth because He just said, as Barry quoted, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. In fact, over the past few weeks, we've learned that Jesus as God validated the entire Bible. Remember, we looked at the New Testament and we looked at the Old Testament. Now with that in mind, I want you to consider the following statements that He made about how people can find God and spend eternity. Because remember, I was just having a discussion with a bunch of actually 20-year-olds this week. The 70, 80, 90 years we've got in this, in this planet is very little. And they all agreed that. Even at 20 years old, I could see that. Very, it's like a speck of dust. What about eternity? Everybody you know has questions about eternity. In fact, when I was in Sydney, I remember there was a guy going round with chalk. Now, I'm not recommending this, but he did. He went round with chalk and he wrote the word eternity all on footpaths and stuff like that, so it wasn't destructive. And it stopped that city. It was the talk of ABC and everything because it is, it is within the heart of man. God has put eternity in the hearts of men and women. Now, they may try to cover that up with chasing materialism or chasing this experience or chasing that position. But ultimately, nothing will satisfy but the ultimate. And that's only in God. So, with, let's consider the following statements about what Jesus said about how we can find God 
first and two, spend eternity with him. Here's one to boot on the screen. John 14, 6 says this, and Barry just quoted this, I am the way. Now notice the exclusivity in that statement. Not one of many, I am the singular way. And I am the truth. In other words, if somebody contradicts what I say, it's false. And I am the life. In me is life, he's saying. In me and me alone, I gave it to you. And, and then he's very, just in case we missed the first part, he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Let that weigh on you a second. Except through me. He was very clear about that. Here's another one, John 10, 1. I tell you the truth. He's saying, hey, heads up, guys. The man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, singular, the gate, but tries to climb in, what he's saying, some other way, is a thief and a robber. And then he qualifies this gate thing. Hang on. I am, there's that word for God again, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. Wow, very clear. Jesus' teaching is extremely clear. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture, a good place. It's spoken in the agrarian economy where there are shepherds and they got that. You find a good pasture, you're a happy camper because your sheep are good. Now these are clear claims here that if you want to find God, the only way to do that, Jesus says, is He alone is the way. That's extremely clear there. It's unambiguous. Just a couple more. Peter, John and Paul all agree. Look at this in Acts 4, verse 12 from the NIV version. Salvation, in fact, you've got that there. Let's read that aloud together. Let's read it aloud with some enthusiasm. Acts 4, 12, let's go. Salvation is found in, for there is under heaven to men, given to men by which we, it's so clear. Never let your thinking focus on this, sharpen it through him alone. John 1, uh, 1 John 5, 12 again. He who has the Son, S-O-N, has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. You're either in or you're out. The sheep or the goats. Very clear teaching. Let's move a little further down. This is a very clear thought as well. 1 Timothy 2.5 For there is one God and one mediator between God and men. Who was that? The man Christ Jesus. One. So if Jesus says He is the one way to God and these New Testament writers as we've just seen agree, then on the basis of our established conclusions in the previous part of the series, we can know that Jesus is the one way people will find the one true God and have a true relationship with Him. Now, 
I want to now quickly look at some of the six facts that support Jesus' claim to be the one way to God. Six of them. Why is Jesus unique? How come He can say that? And Buddha didn't say that. And Krishna didn't say that. And Joseph Smith, who had lost the plot and was a convicted felon, by the way, also never did say anything like this. Muhammad did not die for anyone. Zero. Don't ever think that. Also, neither did... Uh, anyway, well, we'll go on. But now, by contrast, I want you to take a look at these next six points and think about the uniqueness, the one-on-one alone, the unique aspects that Jesus brings here. Jesus died for all people. None of the other guys did. They all died and stayed dead. I can show you where they're buried and their bones were. Now, the penalty for sin is death, and that means eternal, after you die, there's eternal separation from God. That's what that means. But the Bible is clear. Only Jesus, because He was the sinless Son of God, died on the cross in our place, and He paid the penalty for our sins, our rebellion. The Bible says this in 1 John, sorry, John 1.29. John speaking. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The whole world. Here it is, the Lamb. And that's an analogy back to the Old Testament and the sacrificial Lamb. I haven't got time to go into that. And John 10, 11 says, I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. That's John 10, 11. Here's some more scriptures. Now, only Jesus died on the cross for our sins because it says in Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrated his own love for us in this. In this, how did he do it? While we were still sinners. Christ died for us. That's how he demonstrated. He took the initiative. He came towards us. He, he moved first. And by the way, men and women, when you're married, and young ones who are not yet married, when you get in a standoff, which would happen between God and man, the godly response is to take the initiative. Christ set the example. While we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. And again, 1 Corinthians 15.3, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That's why He died. Nobody else has done that. Not Krishna, not Buddha, nobody. Here's another one, 1 John 2.2. He, speaking of Jesus, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. In Christ's death is sufficiency for all who will accept Him. But notice, He will never push this beautiful gift down anybody's throat. He says, here's the offer. If you want it, accept it. And you enjoy the consequences of that. If you don't want it, that's your choice. He's a gentleman. He will never force anybody but you will reap the consequences of our choices, which is the way God said that. That's free will. That was one of the most beautiful gifts He could give us. 
Incredible. See, for love to be love, it has to be freely given. You wouldn't want your wife to love you because she was forced to. You would want her to choose to love you, yes? And in the same way God wants, he says, here's my offer. I would dearly love you to choose, yes, but that is your choice. He will not violate your, soul, your will. Interesting. 1 Peter 2.24 he himself bore his, uh, our sins in his body on the tree. Now the tree means the cross there. So that we might die to sin. Notice that, Christian. So that we Christians may die to sin. Stop sinning. Be holy as your Father is holy. Not so I can yeah, get my fire insurance and live like hell while I'm here. Be careful, friend. There are some that pretend to be Christians and one day we'll get a shock. Because they were like, the Scriptures talk about in Matthew 7. When one day he says, well, Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons in your name, heal this and da-da-da-da-da? And what does he say? They look like Christians, right? But he says, depart from me, I never knew you. There's a sobering sight. This is not a fairy story. This is the most real transaction of your life. If you're taking out a mortgage, you would study the document very well, foolishly otherwise. You need to look at this very carefully and examine it. He himself bore our sins on, in his body on the tree so that we might die to our sins and live instead for what? Righteousness. To live righteously, a holy life. Something that you don't hear about a lot these days. And by his wounds, you're healed. That division. Now, no one but Jesus took our place and paid the price for us. Only Christianity maintains that Jesus died for the sins of all. Whosoever will. Every other religion, friends, contradicts that claim. Contradicts it. Now, third, only Jesus saves. Only the Bible says we cannot earn our salvation. That's the only religion on this planet that says that. So let me be clear about that. Remember, all the other religions say do, Christianity says done. It is done in Christ. We cannot save ourselves. Only Jesus can rescue us from the penalty of sin. He can, he's the only one that can make us clean and perfect again. In God's eyes. Otherwise, we're imperfect, and I think everybody knows that. Me, most of all. All other religions contradict this. Saying, hey, to get to heaven, you must do good deeds and set a whole bunch of other conditions. That's what they say. Now, let me be clear about that one again. Good deeds will never save you. They are the fruit of your salvation, not the root of your salvation. So if somebody says to you, that's why hey, you can explain James, oh, well, I'm a Christian and there's not many good deeds coming through, you could just talk to James. Have a look at the half-brother of Jesus, James. And what did he say? He says, hmm, show me your salvation by your works. In other words, there should be something good coming out of this. It's not, this, it's not the foundation, but it is the fruit. By a tree, you can tell it. You know, you can tell a tree by its fruit, right? 
And that's what he's getting at. Because sometimes with an overemphasis on grace, you find that people are, feel off the hook, no obligation, just to live for themselves. Jesus did not come to save you to live for yourself. Or me either. The Bible says this, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. In other words, none of us are perfect. And are j- but we are justified freely by His grace. I love that word freely. By His gift of grace through the redemption that came through Jesus Christ. That's how that works. Now only Jesus saves. For it is gra- by grace you've been saved through faith. It is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. And if it's a gift, it's free. If I've earned it, it's my wages. Right? So it's free. And Titus 3.5 says this, Jesus saved us not because of the righteous things that we have done, not because of that, but because of His mercy. Because the Bible says even our righteousness is as filthy rags comparison to God's stunning holiness, stunning uh, just perfection. We don't even stand a candle to that. This is the big difference, the contrast. Only Jesus promises eternal life as a free gift. No one else can give us eternal life. It only comes to Jesus. Nobody else claimed to. Did you know that? Nobody. This is a beautiful thing. The longer I'm a Christian, the more amazed I am at the beauty and the wonder and the depth and the breadth and the height of God's plan. So, John 3.16, we know this, you've seen this at rugby games. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And again, just a little further down in John 6, for my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son, that's Jesus, and believes in Him, that's Jesus, shall have eternal life. And I will raise him up. That's his body. His physical body, which will be resurrected. And Juning, you will look like Juning and you will recognise me as Ian. You will have the same resemblance. Same physicality is the correct terminology on that last day. Only Jesus promises us eternal life as a free gift, as we've said. Christianity is alone in this truth claim. No other religion offers that. So when people say all religions are the same, what is the answer? Never, ever sit back on that one. Push back straight away with some facts like that. That Facts gang up on a bunch of fanciful stories (laughs) and they always win. See, opinions are cheap and there are plenty of them. Facts are expensive and they're hard to get. You've got to dig through a lot of dirt to get to facts, to get to gold. So, only Jesus wants us to place all our faith and hope entirely in Him. Muslims, Haimiri via Muhammad, but they don't for one nanosecond believe that He can save them. Not at all. Read the Quran, no way. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son. This is the part where you come in. You have a choice to accept or reject. Two opposites here. You accept Him, what's the consequence? He has eternal life. Whoever rejects the Son will not see life, 
because God's wrath still remains upon him because he isn't perfect in God's sight. So he can't come to heaven, which is perfect. If God let anything that was not perfect come into heaven, heaven would not be perfect anymore. It would be corrupted. It would be just like earth. All other religions contradict this claim. John 8, 24 says, I told you, quite strong words here, you would die in your sins if you did not believe that I am the one I claim to be. You will indeed die in your sins. Jesus was very clear. He wasn't ambiguous, but all other religions contradict that. So, oh, just work your way to heaven. It doesn't work like that. Therefore, we are now at a stage coming towards the end of this series where we can now rule out two of the three theistic religions, <clears throat> Islam specifically and Judaism specifically, because they both contradict core beliefs of Christianity. And Christianity is the only theistic religion left standing. We've whittled it down all the way through. Now, on to the next question. Isn't it too narrow-minded to say that Jesus is the only way to God? Because all other religions, remember, contradict every core New Testament claim about Jesus. So for the final time, I want to refocus on the fact that contradictory truth claims cannot both be true. And I want to take one look one more time at these statements to see how clear they are about Jesus being the only way. John 14, 6 says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Here's another one. Salvation can be found in no, other, no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And again, that amazingly clear scripture in 1 John 5, 12, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son, the opposite, does not have, and the Son of God does not have life. So these declarations are unambiguous. Either, your choice is this, either Jesus and the New Testament is right or they are wrong. Everybody in this room today must make that choice. Either he's right or he's wrong. True or false? So what do you say about Jesus and his claims? What is your call? Because this is a serious thing to consider. The real question for you should be, is it true that Jesus is the only way to God? If he is, I better do something about it. For all the reasons we've covered in this series, this claim is demonstrably true. Now you must ask yourself, what am I going to do with this knowledge? The knowledge of Jesus Christ, the knowledge of God. You have a decision to make. Not your mother, not your father, not your brother or your sister. You have. What are you going to do with this decision? Now, one of my favourite authors, somebody whom all of you know, Mr. C.S. Lewis, challenges us to make a decision about the claims of Jesus, are they true or they false? And this is what he said. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman. 
I mean, who goes around saying I'm God? Come on. Or something worse, demonic. You can shut him up for a fool. Just say, oh, he's a fool. That's a lunatic scenario. Or you can spit at him, hate him, and kill him and think he's a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and recognise him for who he is. Lord and God. But notice this. He said, let us not come with any patronising nonsense about his being a great human teacher. No, he's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Lewis is right. The law of non-contradiction insists we must choose. And by the way, it's like soccer. If you don't show up for the game, you lose by default. You've been given truth, lots of it. And God says for you to choose. Jesus is the only way to God or he's not. There is no other option. So here's one question you may be asked when talking with somebody else. How can people who have never heard of him come to God if Jesus is the only way? You may hear that. So arm yourself for this one. A few thoughts that may help you, just may help you respond. Firstly, the first thing to always do when fired that question is to emphasise clearly that God wants all people to come to Him. And therefore, he, to help us find Him, God has revealed something of Himself, of His nature and of His character in what He has made. What can we, in, in what we can learn from creation. Look at this, the Bible says this in Romans 1. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities... His eternal power and His divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. The Bible says in Psalm 50 verse 6, in the heavens, talking about the heavens like the stars and the universe and the Milky Way of the galaxy, they proclaim His righteousness for God Himself as judge. So God has left a witness, evidence in His creation. We looked at that in week two. That speaks to all people at all times. I mean, people with a modicum of common sense realise this didn't all happen. I mean, when you came in here today and you saw all these tables set up with a certain number of chairs around them, you realise that didn't just randomly happen. Somebody made some effort to put that together. Creation informs us that a supremely powerful, intelligent, loving and personal divine being exists and that he has made everything to fit in intricate order with infinite complexity with our top Hundreds of thousands of PhDs, scientists are trying to figure out with the fastest computers we've got and we're still grasping to understand the awesomeness of God's yeah, omniscience. We're still struggling. The work of his hands point men and women to him 
who have had no prior knowledge of the true God, yet they were deduced that He must be there and they had a heart to get to know Him. In Acts 17, the Bible says, from one man he made every nation of men. Notice that. Follows flat in the face of evolution. From one man he made every uh, nation of men. That they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the times of them. In other words, he knew the time you were going to be born and the exact places where they should live. God knew all that. So that God God did this. Why did he do that? So that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Although he's not far from each one of us. God never forces himself on anybody. He hints at his presence. See, he is not coercive so that you have no choice. You seek him, you'll find him. Hebrews 11.6 says this, and without faith, It is impossible to please God because anybody that comes to Him, and this is one thing for me, it was a very personal verse as a teenager. I came to the place where, yeah, I got that He existed. But the second part of the verse took me a while to get my head around and still to this day, I remember feeling the second part. I could fulfill the first part, I believed He existed, but I wasn't so sure He would reward me for seeking Him. So I got the first. When I got the second, it transformed my life. If you come to God, you must believe that He is and that He rewards you for seeking Him. Those verses show that people who seek Him will find Him. And these truths coming up show that God knows all things and the hearts of people. See, the Bible says in Psalm 44, God knows the secrets of the heart. Imagine that. Every thought that flutters across your mind, God knows about. And He knows anyone who is seeking Him. Anyone. At any place, at any time, He knows. The Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are anyone who understands, anyone who seek God. Second, Remember this, that God is all-powerful, all-powerful, and He is able to reach all people. He is not bounded by, I can't catch a flight there today, or was no, the, the radio waves are not doing so well. In fact, in Jeremiah 32, 27, He says, I am the Lord of all, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? Well, of course, no. Here's another thought. Jesus reiterates this thought here. He says, he looked at them and he said, with man, this is impossible. But he says, with God, all things are possible. Amazing. Never limit God. We need to upsize God. I fear today we downsize God or we, we, we trivialise Him. We need to magnify the Lord with me. Make Him big. Make His name famous. Three, God is all loving and He wants all people to be saved. Everybody. He pleads with His people to turn from their waywardness. The Bible says here in Ezekiel 33 verse 11, Surely as I live, and that's as sure as you're going to get, declares the Sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure 
in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O Israel? That's the heart of God towards His people. Amazing, what love. And remember, Jesus invites everyone, everywhere to come to Him. John 6, verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Never. What an amazing love that He shows. Now, Peter also reminds us of God's desire that for all, that all people will be saved. He says this in 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping His promises as some understand slowness. He is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's a wonderful verse that reminds us of his incredible love and that everyone and anywhere he wants to come to know him. Now, let's put the video on fast forward. And let's go right forward now. And we're in heaven. So this is the context. Notice this verse in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9. After this, this is John speaking. I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every, circle the word every, from every nation, from every tribe, every people and every language standing before the throne in front of the Lamb. One day, standing before God's throne in heaven, you will be there. And there will be people from every tribe, language and ethnic group and nation. Think about this. Throughout history, there have been many tribes, language groups, ethnic groups and nations. What an astonishing Astonishing thought that not one people group that has ever been on the face of the earth will be excluded there. Everyone from any locale in any area who seeks God can find Him. So if somebody wants to know God, God will see that the gospel of Jesus Christ is brought to them because salvation is offered to everyone. It requires no IQ test, does not require any financial Levels, or whatever you want to call them, prerequisites. No age restrictions. Little children can come to know him. People at the very end of their lives have seen that happen. I've seen a man who all of his life railed against God. Hard guy. Really tough. It's his life. I understand that. But at the end of his life, Never met the guy before. Roll into his room with my wife. And all of a sudden he says, would you tell me about this Jesus? I'm going, okay. Always be prepared to give an answer. We share with him. He, at the end it just felt right. I said, would you like me to pray with you? Would you like to accept Jesus? Yes. Okay, so I'm kind of thinking, is this really happening? So I pray for him, go away. The next day, his daughter calls me up saying, what have you done to dad? 
He's crying. He sang about the love of God. What an amazing... I thought, whoa, that was the Holy Spirit got hold of that guy at the end of his life. There was nobody that came and preached to him. God's Spirit is reaching out and looking for hearts who want to know him, even in their deathbed. And if I remember correctly, it was either that, no, it's the room after that, he passed away. But let me tell you, he was over the top, wonderfully, supernaturally. Awesome. So it doesn't matter where we are, God knows that. An all powerful God is not limited to conventional means. I want you to know that. Specifically, you, I'll just, one of the, actually, Roland in this church had passed me this book, which is here 10 Amazing Muslims Who Came to God. You want to have a look at this book? It's a great book. I had a skim read through it this week. That's the next slide. Uh, maybe it's not. It should have one with a, uh, a photograph saying 10 Amazing Muslims to God. Okay, we have the wrong PowerPoint then. Okay, so I'm amazed you're keeping up with me then, guys. So <laughs> something's going well here. So uh, another thought, I was in India not long ago and I met a man there who'd been all of his life from a little boy. His dad was an imam and he'd been, he'd been um, nurtured to be an imam, which is kind of like a pastor in the Muslim faith. Uh, excuse me, in Hindu. And... Um, and basically what he was doing is he was, he was getting ready to do his sort of special rites that they have to do and he had to go away on a long fast and a prayer. Anyway, long story short, he goes off into the mountains to do this prayer and whilst he's there praying, he's going, oh, I'm not feeling very good about this, praying to a God. And next minute, he has a vision of Jesus. Now this guy's never heard of Jesus, right? Never heard of him. And uh, long story short, immediately... He has a complete conviction. And when you do this in the Hindu faith and the Muslim faith, likewise, excuse me, the Muslim faith there, you, you can lose your entire family. And that's important because you tick that off, you lose your land. You, you're done. Your economic future's cut off. You're out of the world. So he goes back and he says, I'm out of this. I've become a Christian in the mountains. He finds this group that I was working with and I met the guy and boy, we had about a two-hour chat. What God did to him was what happened straight out of the book of Acts. Those who seek him will find him. He can use unconventional means. So the book is called 10 Amazing Muslims Touched by God. You can look it up. There's another one by Don Richardson called Eternity in the Hearts of, in, in Their Hearts. And God desires to use missionaries, don't get me wrong. But he, has spoke and, but he can speak and often does speak through a biblical passage, a gospel tract, a vision, a dream. And there are many accounts and many of them are documented in the book, Eternity in the Hearts of Men. Now, the choice is yours. If someone wants to know God, God knows it. And he will get his word to those people. And he invites all to come to him. There is only one Saviour, one true God, and that way is open to Him. So the choice is yours. We make the choice for or against Jesus, for or against the God of the Bible. Now, centuries ago, a man named Joshua made his choice to follow the one true God. And there's that 
note up on the outline. It says, if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, if it doesn't seem the right thing to do, okay, but choose. Don't sit there on the fence, choose. Choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. It's either basically yourself, you'll always serve somebody. You'll serve a boss, you'll serve, or who is your ultimate authority that you answer to? But as for me, Joshua says, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. We will serve the Lord. So what does this evidence mean to me? Well, firstly, in the light of all the evidence that shows Christianity to be true, we need to conclude the series with two questions. One is how can we give a better answer to the question, why are you a Christian? Why are you a Christian? Yeah, it's the wrong PowerPoint. Can you see if you can whip it up, Josh? No, thanks, mate. How, could, how should the truth impact our daily life? And how should all the truths we've examined change each one of us? So the Bible commands Christians to be prepared to give an answer to anyone who wants to know why we believe. And the most bizarre conversations can come up at the most bizarre places. Here it is on your outline, 1 Peter 3.15. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer for everyone who asks you to give the reason. We are commanded to lift our game in this area for the hope that you have. But to do this also with gentleness and with respect to their opinions. For example, that pastor who said very misguided things, and you all know who I'm talking about there, that was completely inappropriate. Jesus would never have handled it that way, ever. He didn't condone the woman caught in adultery. He didn't condemn her. He worked with her. And he said, woman, your sins are forgiven, but go sin no more. He didn't offer a whole bunch of vitriol with gentleness and respect. Some practical steps for us to take today. This is important. Number one, ask yourself, where do you need to grow in this area intellectually in your understanding of Christianity's core beliefs? Have you identified in this series any gaps in your knowledge that you need to strengthen? I know I have. So I would highly recommend that you make a list of areas and a list of questions where you have questions. I have something called OneNote. And at the side, every time I think of a question that I'm not so sure the answer, I bang it into that. So over the years, I build up a list of questions. (laughs) And then when I sit with some mentors of mine, I knock them all off. Like I went and sat with Norm Geisler and I spent four hours firing questions at him. (laughs) He was exhausted after that. But then I've helped, I fixed his iPhone. That's all good. (laughs) A good trade. So make a list of questions. You don't, don't say, well, I don't know, and don't do anything about it. And, answer, and if you come across a question when you're talking to somebody, you say, that's a great question. I'm not sure. Let me go back and find an answer. And then go back with that. You see, you need, to, you need a better handle on what makes your beliefs unique. Do you have that? Do you know why you're different to Muslims or Hindus or atheists or agnostics? For example, somebody belts you on the head and says this, if there is a God, how come there's evil in this world? Have you got a crisp answer to that? If they haven't, I'd recommend you write down the question of evil. 
and then let me, uh, and then if you've got some questions like that, pop them on your communication card and we can fire you to the resources where you can learn, do some self-paced reading. So write down each topic you think that you need to learn more about, then state it as a question. If you want, for example, if you wanted to know more about the evidence of God, you could say, you could, you could state the question like, how can I know that God exists? Can you fire off four or five quick one sentences that can answer that? That's called being prepared to give a reason for the hope that lies within you. Or what evidence is it that the God of the Bible is really there? Can you answer that clearly? That's part of a command. Second, prioritise your list of questions because you'll end up with quite a few questions. That's okay. Faith always has questions. It's not certainty about everything. You grow in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So prioritise them. What's the most important area right now for you to, learn, to study and learn more about? There's scads of resources. Three, access resources. And we can give you plenty of websites that are accredited. In other words, they've gone through somebody's brain because there's a bunch of ones out there that's gone through nobody's brain. So be careful. If somebody says, oh, the website says, you need to check the credibility of the source. Half the stuff I see, the people haven't even got any qualifications to speak on that. Would you go to a doctor that hasn't got any qualifications? And that's your body. This is your soul. Be sure you get accredited resources. And then third, uh, fourthly, record the answer to each of your questions. What I like to do is I will often read the answers aloud as if I was talking to somebody. Then it becomes part of my natural vocabulary. So growing in your faith and learning to give better, more complete answers is a lifelong process for growing disciples of Jesus Christ. And you will make progress if you choose to start and then keep going. See, a disciple is a disciplined one and it's a lifelong process. Don't allow yourself to believe that this is too difficult. It's not. It really isn't. Here's a really practical question which I have been convicted about the last two or three years and I've done something about. Here it is. How many non-believing friends do you really have? Because Jesus said it this way, you are the light of the world. That means the world is a very dark place and you are the light. You have the light. You, a city on the hill cannot be hidden. In other words, don't put it in the corner. The Christian life is not meant to be lived inside the Christian fortress with solely Christian friends. That is a total wrong concept for Christianity. We all need to get up, get out, reach out to a dying world that desperately needs the good news. Romans 2.19 says, you're a guide for the blind. We can see because we follow the light. The world is blind, going down dead ends. Anybody ever been following anybody in a car? And you don't know where to go and you follow them. They're going in a blooming dead end and you know they're going the wrong way. Very frustrating, right? because you inevitably end up doing a U-turn and coming back the other way. That's what Jesus says, the world's like, says they're blind guides, they don't know where they're going. But you are a guide for the blind, a light to those in dark that go, oh, that's the way. 
So God has called all of His followers of Jesus to be lights in a dark world, not for the lights to hang out together all the time. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. That means seek, there's forward motion, there's impetus, there's momentum in that. Are you looking for the conversations and the relationships? And this is a stunningly good time of year to have conversations with people. At parties, for example. I was at a party last night, met a guy I'd never met in my life before, but you know what? He wanted to know about God. And you know what? He's been in a family that's been a Christian a long time, but somehow somebody else talking to him kind of opened his heart. Interesting, eh? Great time to invite people to Christmas services. What better time could you do? So how should the truth impact my life? Jesus chose agape to describe love's highest form. And that word agape means to love somebody totally and completely. It means to love them not because of what they can do for you or how they can help you or what you may hope to get from them, but just for who they are. Now, Jesus, therefore, wants us to love God so completely that we're willing to commit our whole lives to Him that we become devoted to doing His will and His purpose. Not just we love Him because of what we can get from Him. Now, Jesus not only tells us to love God, but He tells us how to love God. And He tells us in Matthew, excuse me, Mark 12, 30, to love God, the Lord your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. So what does that mean? What would it look like to love God in this way and to fulfil what Jesus said? Now, when he says the heart, Jesus is not talking to this thing that's sitting in your chest that beats furiously when you're running around a squash court. He's pointing to the centre of human desires and emotions. Our heart, as Jesus used it, is where we make choices. God, I wanna, hang on, I, I offer this to you first. Where we make choices, where we decide how to think and what to do, right or wrong, good or evil. Whether we decide to please God or not, whether we decide to follow Him and obey Him, it's the heart. So loving God with all of our heart means we make decisions that please Him, decisions that please Him, that come from the heart. We talk a lot about loving God and making choices that please Him, but we can't overlook the other three ways that Jesus commands us. See, He doesn't have idle words. Every word has meaning. Three other ways He commands us to love God. Now, what does Jesus mean when He says, love God with all of our mind? What does He mean there? Too infrequently, we focus, we do, uh, let me say, we focus on, uh, we don't focus enough on this whole area. It's often with the heart and not with the mind. Yet clearly the Scriptures say there we're to use our mind in a particular way if we claim to love God. Our mind is where we think, where we reason, where we come to conclusions. Paul reasoned from the Scriptures in Acts 17, 2 and 3, debating the facts as he encouraged people to reach a conclusion about Jesus. It says here, As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them. You can get the sense he's arm wrestling with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. He was in there. He was debating that with all his worth. So heart, mind, what about strength? 
God is asking us to have the spiritual strength to take a stand for Him. Do we have the, for example, the spiritual strength to stand for His moral standard? Do we have the intellectual strength to defend the truth of His Word and not back down when somebody attacks it? See, Christians face challenges for which they sometimes feel quite unprepared from atheists, agnostics, people from other religions and cults. They make truth claims that make some believers question their faith. Now, many who are not sure about how to respond just simply retreat for safety, thinking, ooh, I don't know the answer to that, and they back off into the safety of the Christian beehive. But they think, but I want you to think for a moment about these examples of people in the Old Testament specifically who stood in the face of incredible difficulty. Noah, the Bible says, was the only righteous man left. But he stood for God. And he took some flack. Something completely counterintuitive. Start building an ark. Abraham and Lot's families were living among the pagan culture and they were filthy pagan. I'm telling you, it was terrible. That rejected the true God. Yet they stood for him. Two men, Moses and Aaron, took on the political system of Egypt and the religious pluralism of Egypt and dared to stand up to the most powerful man pretty much on the face of the planet, the whole Egyptian empire. Three men, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. You know how to remember that? Shake the bed, make the bed and into bed you go. The apostles, they were beaten. I mean, you know, today if somebody punches in your face, you'd sue him. They were beaten, man. They were punched, flogged, stoned, gruesomely martyred. But they chose to stand. The Bible says stand firm. They chose to stand for Jesus. And God used each of these individuals in their time, in their place because they found strength to stand for him. And then God calls all of us in this room to be strong and to stand for him. You see, he's called you and I to be salt. Salt. Salt preserves. Stops things rotting. Remember, that's how Jesus said this world is. It's rotting. You are salt, like an antiseptic. And you're light where it's dark. He's contrasting, contrasting. You're light, salt and light, where the, spiritually, where the world is rotting and dark. And it says it here, Matthew 5, verse 13. You're the salt of the earth, but, ooh, this is a warning. If salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled on by men. You, my family, he's saying here, are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and then stuff it under a bowl. You, put, you light a lamp, instead you put on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house so they can see clearly. They're not stumbling around in the darkness. So folks, the Christian faith is not a blind faith. It always has content. 
And Jesus says he is the light of the world and he wants us to point people to him. And he's given each of us a mind and he expects us to use that in loving him and sharing what we know with others. That's what's loving him with all their mind. Now, very interesting verse. Mr. Jude. Jude was the brother of James. So Jude and James were both half-brothers of Jesus. So this is one of the half-brothers of Jesus speaking right here. And he says this, Dear friends, this is a very interesting verse. Although I was very eager, that means he was real keen to write to you about the salvation we share, which is incredibly important. Although I was very keen to do this, I felt I had to urge right and urge you even more to contend for the faith that was once entrusted to the saints. Part of your call as a disciple of Jesus is to contend for the faith of Jesus Christ. And Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, felt it was critically important. Notice that verse. So what does all this mean to you? What does it mean to love him with all of your soul? This isn't the same, by the way, the last category, as loving him from all your heart or mind or strength. Your soul is what will survive death. It's kind of like the body you drive around now is like a car and your soul is like the driver. When you hop out the car, you're gone and that car stays and it can get crunched, as many cars do but you, you are different, a separate pattern. This is just a body that, you, that holds the soul of Ian in. Ian is body, soul and spirit. We'll talk about that later on. But your soul survives death and lives on to eternity. And to love God this way, we begin by asking Him to forgive our sins and to come into our lives. This is what he, uh, we mean when we say someone has become a Christian. He or she has accepted God's free gift of salvation. Because remember, Jesus came for one overriding purpose. One overriding purpose. And it's to die in your place and mine. To make us acceptable to God. To pay the price for our sin. So God placed the sins, our sins on Jesus when He was on that cross. The Bible says it here in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made Him who had no sin. He was perfect, remember? To be sin for us so that in Him we might become righteous for God. We're clothed, the Bible says, in His cloak of righteousness. So God covers us. Now that, this means that we don't have to be separated from God from all eternity. We can be made acceptable and clean. And we can choose to live in His presence and experience His love, joy, peace and deep-seated fulfilment that He originally intended us to live and He knows we will not get out of power, possessions, pleasure and all those other peas. All we must do is accept His forgiveness and that sacrifice. Because the Bible says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. In Christ our Lord. And again, for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So some people say to me, the shortest way to ask a person, well, some of you will some, sometimes say to you, maybe Adeline, how do I become a Christian? The easiest way to answer that is remember this one scripture. 
in Romans 10, 9, for if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. That's exactly what that says. Once you're a Christian though, God wants you to be burdened, concerned about what concerns Him. And what concerns Him is the lost. The other souls who don't know Jesus. Do you know anybody like that? Do you know anybody at the golf club? Or the pistol club? Or ballet? Or badminton? Or work? We should all be concerned for anyone lacking that saving relationship with Him. Because I don't want those people to ever say, well, I didn't know because you never told me. And I was there next to you for the last three years. You never mentioned a word. That responsibility will be on my head. Now, perhaps you're not a Christian and maybe you've never considered the unique truths of the Bible. And maybe you haven't understood who Christ is or why He came. But an incredible event happened about 2,000 years ago As Jesus hung on that cross, he became our substitute and he took our place. And this is what makes it possible for you to be forgiven for all of your sins. All we must now do is accept that gift. Free gift of salvation. If you've never accepted Christ's offer and would like to do so, why don't you do that today? And maybe you can use that prayer on the back of your outline, which is just down the bottom here. Let's take a look at that now and ask Him to come into your life and to forgive your sins. So I'm going to read that prayer aloud with our eyes open. I want you to follow me along. In fact, let's read this prayer in our own minds, all right? Because God hears everything. Follow me along as I go. And if, by the way, before I do, if you haven't been a Christian before, and at the end of that, you want to say, yep, That's exactly what I want to do. Would you let me know about that in the back of the communication card and just check that? I want to send you a free Bible, a Bible reading program. So I'm going to read it and you just follow along with me. It says, Dear God, I know that I have sinned against you and I know I need to be forgiven. I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins and I accept his free offer of forgiveness. Forgive my sins, Lord Jesus. Come into my life now as my Saviour and my Lord. Thank you for doing this to me. Thank you that I am now yours. Thank you that when my time here on earth is done, I will spend eternity in heaven with you. Amen. Now, if you pray this prayer from your heart, Not because I asked you to, but because you said, yeah, me, now's my time. If that's you, you have just been restored to your creator. Welcome to the family of God. You will spend eternity with him and you'll spend the rest of your life growing as a Christian. And as a first step on that journey, I would like to give you, this church would like to give you a free Bible and a little document to help you get started. So if that was you today and you have decided that's you, just check on your communication card. I've given my life to Christ and I would love to pray with you and send that information to you. Father, thank you for this time when we can look at the amazing plan that you have for our lives. Thank you, Lord, that you came to save us. 
and that your plan was before the beginning of this world, you were planned to send Jesus so that we may become part of your family. Thank you for our time together today. Thank you for those who are giving their hearts to you, Lord, and have given their hearts to you. Thank you for those that have been here through this series that you are prompted to grow in their knowledge of their Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. I pray that, Lord, you would inspire them to study on their own and to grow with you and with their small group and with others, that they may be strong disciples that would stand firm for you and be fully equipped to, and prepared to give a reason for the hope that lies within them, whether that be at work or with their neighbours. I pray your blessing upon each one. In Jesus' name I ask it.